Welcome to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin, and my guest is uh, Chapel Hill's Willis Wichard, or Bill Wichard, as we know him, a lawyer, legislator, Supreme Court justice, uh, and law school dean, uh, and also the author of a new book called A Consequential Life. And then there's a subtitle in there, in there, Bill Wichard. David Swain, 19th century, North Carolina, and their university. Tell us about this book. <clears throat> the origins, pe people often ask me, why of all the people you could have picked to write about, did you pick Swain? The truth is, I didn't pick him. I was picked to write about him. Many <clears throat> Chapel Hillians will remember Albert and Gladys Coates. Albert was a law professor, but his claim to fame was that he founded the Institute of Government, now the School of Government. <clears throat> he and Gladys kept it going with their own money during the Depression. To get to the point, they had no children, and they provided in their wills that at the death of the last of them to die, their estate would go to the North Carolina collection at the university library to be used first for a biography of Albert and then for biographies of the presidents and chancellors of the university. Our friend Bob Anthony was the curator of that correct uh, collection until about almost a year and a half ago now when he retired, but he formed an advisory committee to pick authors and supervise the project. And early on, they put the finger on me um, to do this Swain. They, they, after they did the biography of... Uh, no, I, I, I was working on this while Howard Covington was working on the... Um, but the project was to get the biographies of all the chancellors and presidents. So. Eventually, yes. Yeah, that that's what the bequest uh, was to do. Their theory, as they expressed it to me, um, <clears throat> was that my career in Swain's had parallels, that we're both lawyers, but both of us have spent the majority of our lives holding public office and in the academy. I also had a previous biography of James Iredell, a George Washington appointee to the original U.S. Supreme Court, so I had some track record for having done it. But anyway, they asked me to do David Swain. Um, I took it on, and ultimately I was glad I did. Well, was, tell us briefly who was David Swain. We know, I, I know um, David Swain is maybe the source of the uh, name of Swain Hall on the campus where— Lots of things have happened, including old old people will remember that it was a place where they uh, ate ate their meals in North Carolina. <laughs> Who was he? He grew up in Asheville, became a lawyer, actually came to the university very briefly. But in those days, there was no real impetus to get an undergraduate education if you were going to be a lawyer. You read law under some established member of the profession and qualified yourself for the bar exam that way. Swain came to Raleigh and read law under 
the first Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, John Lewis Taylor. About what time, what year was, about what? Early 1820s. He was born in 1801, must have been probably 21 when he came to Raleigh to do that. He goes back to his hometown of Asheville. He was the first native to come back there as a lawyer. But it doesn't take him long to get to his real ambition, which is politics. He buys 100 acres of land because there was a property qualification for serving in the legislature then. And at the ripe old age of 23, he gets elected to the North Carolina House of Commons. He serves ultimately five terms there. They were one-year terms then. It it was interrupted after, I believe it was three, by about a year as the solicitor or prosecuting attorney in the northeastern North Carolina district. This sounds a little peculiar to us because he was from the far west. He becomes the prosecuting attorney in the far northeast. But the bench and bar in that area at that time couldn't get together on whom they wanted um, as the prosecuting attorney when the one in the office died. Swain had become popular with a wide variety of people in the legislature, and in those days, the legislature elected everybody. So they ultimately settled on Swain, and he goes— Did he stay in the legislature while he's serving? No, he he did not do that. He took one term out— served in the office for about a year, and he was building a statewide constituency. Did he do this deliberately, or this was well, an accident? Of the, I, I, I can't give you a direct answer <clears throat> to that. I will say, though, uh, yes, I think he calculated the benefits of it. He definitely expanded his influence in areas of the state where he was largely unknown previously. But he then comes back, serves another couple of terms in the House, decides it's time to get out of that, and he becomes a Superior Court judge. Again, the legislature elected him to that. He does that for about two years, and the legislature again gets hung up on something. Governors in those days were elected by the legislature. They served one-year terms, could only serve three terms in a row without a break before serving again. The incumbent governor, Montford Stokes, was eligible for another one year and was expected to seek it and get it. But President Andrew Jackson appointed him the chair of the Federal Indian Commission to go out and settled the Indians in other parts of the country. So he did not seek another term. And the legislature, not really prepared for that, got hung up on it and again turned to the youthful statesman from the West. He was elected governor shortly before his 32nd birthday. See, that's a pretty young to be governor. Well, he was... 
remains, probably always will, the youngest governor in the state's history. You will see accounts <clears throat> saying it was advance, but I checked the numbers and Swain was, as I remember, about four months younger than Vance when he got to be governor. Well, the, the, it, this seems, the, the whole thing seems strange to us. A one-year term for, for a governor, uh, <clears throat> hard to get anything done during that time. Was the, what was the source of the idea that, that you needed to limit the governor to just one year? It was the colonist reactions to King George III. They did not trust an executive with power, so the power was retained in what was thought of as the people's body, the legislature. Well, what kind of power did the governor have uh, uh, back then? To, did he have the same powers that the governor today has? He had some appointive powers, William Gaston was quoted when Swain was taking the office as saying all he needed to do was make good appointments and, and provide good hospitality. There was some entertainment expectations. But um, he had a bully pulpit. He could be an advocate and attempt to move the state in certain directions. And he was what we would call, um, relatively speaking now, relative, relative to his times, an activist governor. And what he was doing was picking up on the Archibald Murphy vision for progress. Now, you got to explain what the—I tell you what, let's take a break and come back to Archibald. It's a key element. Uh, if you join us late, I'm visiting with uh, Willis Wichard um, about his, his re recent brand-new book, I guess still, A Consequential Life, and it's uh, essentially a biography of uh, Governor David Swain. Uh, Mr. Richard and I will be right back. Well, welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. My guest is Willis Wichard. Uh, we're talking about his new book, A Consequential Life. It is a biography of the youngest governor North Carolina ever had, David Swain. Uh, we're, again, thanks for coming, Bill Wichard. Sure. Um, we're talking about David Swain as governor and trying to help those of us who live in uh, today's world understand what the world of the governor was. And he, you know, our governor today has extraordinary powers. He would say that I'm sure the current governor would say he didn't have enough power, but he's got a lot. Uh, David Swain, other than making a few appointments didn't have to do anything, didn't have to do much, did he, as governor? But he was an advocate. Archibald Murphy was in the state senate from Orange County from 1812 to 1818. North Carolina was then known as the Rip Van Winkle. It was so backward in every respect, known as the Rip Van Winkle state. And Murphy had a vision of internal improvements. Build your infrastructure, we would call it today, build roads, bridges, canals, drain swamps, build railroads. You can develop your economy 
And once you've developed your economy, it can produce revenues that enables the state to educate its people. There were no what we would call public schools in those days. They were called common schools when they came about. But Murphy had articulated this vision, but not had the capacity to implement it. And Swain picked up on the vision, became a big advocate for it, chaired two state-level internal improvements commissions while he was governor, and again, was advocating for universal public education. Now, a footnote to this, that meant for white males in those days, but educate all your white male citizens. The state had started what was called a literary fund in the 1825 legislature, but it still did not have enough money in it to fund the public school system. But Swain was advocating that once we built the infrastructure and had the economy that would produce the revenues to do it, that we educate everybody, we did not, in fact, get any public schools until he had left office. The first, what we would call public school, opened in Rockingham County in 1840, but... Swain by then was president of the university, and the state asked him to write the plan for public education, which, which he did. Well, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about the Murphy plan and how it fit in terms of the political realities of the whole United States, in terms of how po- some politicians like Murphy and like Swain we're saying we've got to build—we we don't have anything in our state or in our area. We're not developed, and we've got to figure out some way to build roads so that we, our farmers can get their crops to the market. And uh, some politicians were became enthusiastic about this, I guess, and others said, that's not the role of government. We, we don't want our government doing that. How did, how did that sort out? That's exactly what they said. So— This was not without controversy at the time, and it was basically, as you've indicated, simply a conservative philosophy that that was not a proper role for government. But Swain, Murphy before him, and others were strong advocates for it, and over time um, got a lot done. Today we think of uh, Democrats as being the progressive uh, part those who want the government to be active in doing things for the people and for the building for the future. Uh, how did Democrats like Andrew Jackson, for instance, feel about this idea that the role of government was to build roads and canals and drain swamps and things like that? I'm an expert on Swain, but not on Jackson. <laughs> but I can. You te- mentioned Andrew Jackson several I, times. I, I, I can tell you that Swain was not a fan of Jackson's. And I think, therefore, you can assume that Jackson was opposing some of the things that that Swain was for. So, I mean, it, it was simply one of the controverted issues of that day, just as you have people wanting government to do things and move things in what they consider 
a forward direction these days and other people saying, no, we don't want government doing that, uh, you, you certainly had the same thing back then. Moving from Murphy, uh, Archibald Murphy uh, back to Swain, what, what did Swain do to further Murphy's vision? Well, he called, as I said, two internal improvements conditions. They issued reports on what we should do. He was pretty constantly in communication with other leaders in the state and to some degree nationally uh, attempting to further this objective. He incidentally, if we could back up just a minute, as a member of the State House of Commons in his 20s, he got um, the Buncombe Turnpike enacted, which really opened up western North Carolina to trade with other states like It's sort of like a toll road type? I don't believe it was a toll road. It, was, it, was it just may a, have been. a new road that would but, open but, up. But new, new roads that make it possible to move farm goods to markets, lets uh, people come in from surrounding states and farmers here market their goods. It, it was— <coughs> where, it, where did it go? It, it basically went from Asheville to the Tennessee line. Uh-huh. And this was the 1825. That's a rough road. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you well know that the, uh, even with good roads, it's hard to cross those mountains. That This was mountainous terrain, very difficult to traverse. But this, for the time, really opened up that area to commercial possibilities that had not been there before, and he was 24 years old when he got that done. Um, well, he, it, it proved, I guess, at least to him and to others, that it, in certain cases, when the government spends money to accomplish something like building a road or a canal or something, it can increase um, revenues enough to pay for it. To you can look at it and say it, it was an, it, we improved ourselves enough to pay for that. It was an investment. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> and it paid off. For well, I'm enjoying talking about this, but we how, how did uh, Governor Swain uh, become the president of the University of North Carolina, and how did that work out? Joseph Caldwell was the first president of the university. There were a couple of others who were what were called presiding professors. But Caldwell had been the longtime president. About what, what, in what years was this? Just he, Well, he, he died in January of 1835. I want to say he had become president actually for the second time. He had been president, stepped down. They had a presiding professor for a couple of years. He came back, I want to say about 1813, 14, and was there until his death. Swain was on the University Board of Trustees at the time that Caldwell died. He died in late January 1835. Back in those days, the trustees met twice a year. They met in June and in December. They had an executive committee that made decisions in the interim times, and the 
executive committee named Professor Elisha Mitchell, Mitchell as the acting president came to their June meeting and for reasons not spelled out in the records, um, decided to postpone the election of a permanent president until the December meeting. And at the time of the December meeting, Swain was about to go out of office as governor, ineligible constitutionally to run again without an interim period. He was <clears throat> 34 years old and not sure what he was going to do. Had a wife and I think maybe one child at that time. So he, was, he needed to work. And the long and the short of it is the trustees picked him to be the president five days before he left the governor's office. And the day after he left the governor's office, he came to Chapel Hill and was here the rest of his life. So he was president of the university almost 33 years, the longest serving president in the history of the university, and almost certainly will continue well, to you, be. You have to compare him in the, term, in the idea of the long term to uh, William Friday. There are comparisons, although <laughs> you've got to remember that the university in Swain's time was more like a high-level boys' prep school. It, it, it had no graduate programs, um, <clears throat> was small. When Swain came here, there were 89 students. He built the enrollment to around 460 before the Civil War. Um, UNC was the second largest educational institution in the country, second only at that right before until at the time right, right at the before time the, the sec, second only to Yale where you went to law school, um, but I mean we that's incredibly small by today's standards when there's thirty some thousand students here graduate and professional programs high level research being done here. The university at that time existed mainly to prepare boys for leadership positions in society to well, prepare people to be lawyers, doctors, preachers, that kind of thing. If you join us late, I'm visiting with Bill Wichard about his most recent book, uh, A Consequential Life, which is a biography of uh, David Swain, <clears throat> who was uh, governor and uh, later president of the uh, University of North Carolina. Mr. Wichard and I will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with uh, Willis Wichard. Uh, those of you who don't know Mr. Wichard, uh, don't know one of the most accomplished uh, public servants, a man who served uh, not only as a lawyer in private practice, but as uh, a legislature serving in both houses, Supreme Court and Court of Appeals Justice, and a law school dean. Uh, he was the dean of the Campbell Law School. He's also a great author um, of important North Carolina figures, including the the first one on James Iredell, a uh, uh, United States Supreme Court judge. But we got him here talking about his uh, latest book about David Lowry Swain. 
and uh, we were trying to get our handle on uh, what this guy did. I mean, what was the University of North Carolina like when he was president, and how long did he serve as president? He was here right at 33 years, came here at 34 years old, left the office at 67 and was dead within a little over a month, but we'll get to that later perhaps. Um, he was definitely sort of the boy wonder of the North Carolina leadership class. Um, in a way, it was political. The board of trustees at the time was still in Whig control. He was a, an active Whig, although, interestingly, he got to the governorship really as basically a nonpartisan. But over the course of his governorship, the lines were solidifying, and he came to identify clearly with the Whig party. Um, but he um, had done a good job as a legislator, a superior court judge. Um, <clears throat> and he was familiar with the university because he'd served on the board of trustees. He had been on the trustees, I want to say, four years, three or four years. Um, so, yes, um, he, was known, he was a known quantity. Um, Bill, which I'm going to interrupt you just because it's, this is, ties into current uh, current challenges, but there must have been people on the Chapel Hill faculty who said, you know, we're an academic institution. We don't want no politician coming and telling us <laughs> what to do. Uh, that would, it, 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 when, when we uh, reach out, like the University of Florida recently has reached out and uh, named a political figure, there is uh, brewing in the University of Florida faculty to say, a politician? Why do we have a politician? Was there some of this kind of reaction to Swain's appointment? Well, some of the professors quite naturally thought they should have been the <laughs> president. There was one who made the comment that the people of North Carolina had given David Swain every honor they had to give, and now they were sending him to Chapel Hill to be educated. Uh, there was one faculty member who, within a year, basically quit because he didn't like what had happened. But the other side of that is Swain rather quickly began to consolidate the faculty around him to build his influence with the faculty, came to be a very dominant figure, and not necessarily in a bad way, uh, but he, he he was the university's leader. There wasn't much question uh, about that. And he also taught. He taught almost as much as the other faculty he was, members. He, he was sort of in reserve to uh, when there was a vacancy or when somebody <clears throat> was sick or absent. <clears throat> Swain was there ready to uh, jump in and teach the course. He did that. But he also had his own courses. He taught things in the areas in which he had experience. He, he taught some history, some international law. He dealt with Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the uh, Glorious Revolution of 1688 in England, and things like that. And his reputation was as a very good teacher. There are some wonderful 
student diaries in the Southern Historical Collection talking about, uh, about his Governor Swain's teaching and how there was one student who slept through Swain's class one day and deeply recriminated himself for having done that because he knew he'd really yeah. missed something. And, of course, he was teaching as he disciplined the students. And there was a great deal of unruly conduct by those boys in those days. And Swain really functioned not like a modern university president raising money and doing the public relations aspects of it, but he was sort of the dean of students. Uh, the faculty technically had the disciplinary authority, but an awful lot of the time they delegated it to the president. I want, gosh, this is moving along so fast. I want to talk about some of the big problems that Swain had, and one, one of them uh, that we've heard about before but not in detail, and that was the uh, sad tale of Professor Hedrick, who expressed pro um, or anti-slavery uh, opinions at a time when it was uh, that was not a uh, that was not a wise thing to do for anybody in North Carolina. Hedrick was from, as I recall it, Davidson County. Interestingly, came from a slaveholding family, so it was traditional North Carolina to the core. He was an excellent student when he was here, and Swain had an eye on him as a future faculty member. He goes off to the Lawrence Scientific School at Harvard and gets a PhD basically in chemistry and the sciences, and indeed is called back to the faculty here joins the faculty as a very young man, was a very popular and highly regarded teacher. In 1856, a student asked him one day who the best candidate for president is. And his answer is that it's John C. Fremont. This is like 1856. 56, of the Free Soil Party, which evolved into the Republican Party, but a party which opposed the extension of slavery into the territories. But he said if there was a free soil ballot in North Carolina, if they were on the ballot in North Carolina, he would vote for Fremont. That was heresy to the slaveocracy in the state. Well, but he's a professor and he's should be get granted latitude to have wild opinions as we try to do that. Did that? Did he get that? The benefit of that? Well, you 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 are stating 20th century values. Um, most people don't know that. Actually, the First Amendment, freedom of speech doctrine, was in the Bill of Rights at that time. But you didn't have a fleshed-out jurisprudence. You really get that beginning with Justice Holmes. And academic freedom was basically unknown then. Um, there was no such thing as tenure. That, that's an early 20th century invention. So to bottom line this, the historian Alfred Brophy, who used to be at the law school here, is now the University of Alabama has written a book on slavery in higher education, 
And he says political firings of faculty were common in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So, again, to bottom line this, Hedrick loses his job. I'm hoping that you would say that Swain was heroic and stood up uh, stood up to the popular view and protected his his um, faculty his beloved one of faculty member that he really liked and respected to protect him. Did, did Swain again? You're reflecting 21st century values, not the values of the 19th century. Swain tried very hard. Again, this is counter to what we think a university is all about. But the university belonged to the people of North Carolina, and this was the view of the people of North Carolina, at least as to the ruling classes. So it's hard for us to realize how unacceptable an an anti-slavery point of view was, but it was. And no, I'm afraid Swain took the matter to the faculty the faculty with only one vote to the contrary um, voted to remove him. If it had not, the trustees were going to do it anyway, and they then followed up by doing it. And the leader of the opposition to Hedrick was a man who later became better known for other things, William W. Holden. He published the North Carolina Standard newspaper in Raleigh, and he was constantly beating the drums about how the university had to get rid of this deviant who was indoctrinating the students with anti-slavery views. So Hedrick leaves the state and never comes back, actually. Interestingly, he and Swain continue to have a close relationship. He ends up spending most of his life in Washington, and from time to time, Swain called on him to do things for the university, called on him to help him acquire information about his daughter's suitor later on. Um, So Hedrick apparently never really held it against Swain. That's another thing that kind of shows what I think your book shows, which is that Swain was a uh, people person who kind of knew how to get along with folks. And again, it... it, uh, Reminded me of uh, William Friday's reputation for being able to take, for most people, impossible situations and just knowing how to come close to somebody, persuade them how to do it. Uh, If you join us late, I'm visiting with Bill Wichard about his latest book, A Consequential Life, which is a biography of governor and uh, president of the university, uh, David Swain. He and I... uh, Bill Wichard and I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. Uh, this is D.G. Martin, and I'm visiting with uh, our friend Bill Wichard talking about his <laughs> latest book, A Consequential Life, which is a biography of David Swain, who was both governor of North Carolina and longtime president of the University of North Carolina, and uh, which... Uh, began to come to a close at the onset of the Civil War. How did the Civil War—describe to us what the Civil War did to the University of North Carolina and to David Swain. Well, it devastated the university's finances. 
most people don't realize this. They think of the university as a public institution that's always been supported by the state. The state did not give an annual appropriation to the university until 1881. It was financed in its origins by mainly tuition, some gifts, at one time briefly some lottery funds, but... Um, a sheet sometimes? A what? A sheet? It's sheets, yes, absolutely. It's it's, somebody died without identifiable heirs. The funds went to the state, and they were dedicated to the university. The university, I think, still gets those. I had an Escheats tuition scholarship when I was a student here. Now, that's 60-plus years ago now. But, uh, yes, Escheats, tuition, gifts, mainly. <clears throat> a tuition-driven university that has trouble getting students is in trouble. And what would have been the student population in those post war years. The men were in their graves. They were at home recovering from war wounds, or they were at home trying to revive family farms that had been neglected for four years. So the university was advertising for students. Um, and some long problems with the university sort of surfaced that wouldn't have probably without this. The university had not bought a lot of books for the library, not bought a lot of scientific equipment for the science professors, and there began to be some unrest as students began going. Um, Trinity and Wake Forest to, to private colleges in the state at the time were drawing more students than Chapel Hill was. A lot of them were going to the University of Virginia and to Washington and Lee. So the financial problems that all of this resulted in, and you got a new board of trustees. You had a, a reconstruction board. And Swain had some health problems, the main one being that he was deaf. He couldn't hear. One of the faculty members said if you wanted to tell him something in confidence, the only way to do it was to get him out in an open field, way away from anything else, because otherwise you had to talk so loud other people could hear it. But the, the combination of all of this ultimately led the trustees to, quote, accept the resignations of Swain and the entire faculty. Today, they would probably lose their accreditation. Clear, they were clearing house. They were clearing house and starting over. <clears throat> now, ultimately, it didn't work in that three years after Swain and them, they were closed for a semester. They tried to reopen, carried on till 1871, and in February 1871, the university closed down for four years. Where was Swain during all this? Well... <laughs> Swain dies a little over a month after he leaves the after office. he's fired. After he's, in effect, fired, yeah. I mean, he resigned, as did all of the faculty. But the time had come when 
They, well, they, this is it's interesting is because um, in modern times, in recent modern times, we've experienced the uh, uh, turmoil that occurs when a new political regime takes charge of the legislature and the uh, trustees and um, and uh, people that are beloved leave or are sent away and this happened to or also happened to the uh, university in the post-civil war days yes um, three weeks or so after Swain left the office he went down to a plantation he had in Chatham County on the way back the horse, which incidentally was a gift Sherman had given to him, and which Swain had accepted as a sign of uh, reconciliation. Hey, Bill Richard, that is a story for another day. I mean, inc incredibly. Thank you for um, introducing us to your book. Thank you uh, for the book, which is full of tales like the ones we skipped over today. <laughs> And thanks to all of you all for um, listening and for learning about uh, Bill Wichard's latest book and about uh, Governor and University President David Swain. Uh, this is D.G. Martin, and I'll, I'll be back on Who's Talking Before You Know It. <laughs>